A stronghold is something in your life. It could be a habit. It could be a hurt, some sort of hang-up. It could be an addiction. It could be depression. It could be a memory. Lots of things a stronghold can be, but it's something that has such a hold on you, it just won't let go. And because it won't let go, you find yourself kind of being strangled in certain places of your life where you feel like you just can't make any progress in something. So I'd just like to ask, is there anyone here online, wherever you are in the house, sanctuary, true worth, that would, you just kind of maybe kind of, kind of raise your hand and say, I, I know I've got a stronghold in my life somewhere, my family or someone that would say you would do that. There are, there are a few people who would say, I've got a stronghold or two. I wonder if there's anybody in the same way would say, you know, there's a place in my life where I really need a breakthrough. I, I need to break through something that's kind of been a barrier in my life. So there are some here. And others of you are just a little uncomfortable raising your hands. But I'm going to trust some of you didn't raise your hand here, but you did it in here or in here. So, God, you saw. You saw the hands that were raised outwardly and inwardly, some resistant, not even wanting to acknowledge it, perhaps. There's some areas in our lives, God, where we're stuck. We're stuck in the past. We're stuck in some sort of behavior, some sort of habit. We just can't get rid of it. We get rid of it and it comes back. It's got a stronghold. And you tell us in your word, you told us in this song that we just sang, that when you speak, your words can cause a breakthrough. That's the song we just sang. And God, I'm going to ask that you make that become a reality for someone today. They will experience a breakthrough and begin to live the life that you intended at their birth. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to find the book of Colossians. We're in the summertime. We pick a book of the Bible and study through it. If you're a guest, we're in our fifth week of this message series, just kind of walking through the book of Colossians. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. They'll bring one to you. And if you're a guest... Uh, this is not our way of calling you out. I want you to know you, we're not going to do that with you. We're just glad that you're here. We're not trying to embarrass you. Uh, but if you want a Bible, you can put it in your hands. We're going to do a little verse-by-verse study. You'll notice in your worship guide, this little insert, it's got sermon notes, and it's got a blank page. Normally, that page would have a lot of fill-in-the-blanks. There's no fill-in-the-blanks. It's one big blank. And because we're kind of doing a little Bible work here, and you just kind of write down whatever you hear God saying, whatever you need to record. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand, they'll bring one to you. And if you want to, you can use your phone. You're welcome to use your phone over there in the sanctuary. There's Bibles right there in the pews, and I know right there at True Worth you have your own. Now, there's, I want to give a little warning about the phone this morning. I know what's going on right now. And some of you are just here, but your heart is with the World Cup. And some of you have your phones, and you're going to pretend, make me think that you're looking at Scripture, and I know you're not. Because we have developed a new software in our Wi-Fi system 
that we can notice when people do that stuff, and your phone will explode right in your hand if you do that. I'm just telling you. <laughs> and everybody's going to know that you're checking the score in the sanctuary. Yeah, we got it happening over there in True Worth. You'll be surprised what we can do through the wireless. So I'm just kind of giving you a little heads up and warning, okay? If anybody goes, go, we'll know. Are we together? Okay. One, one of the most common questions that I'm asked by people, and this is from believers, but a lot of folks who are struggling, not even sure if they believe. What is God like? I mean, really, tell me, what is God like? Common question. Especially with someone who's struggling with their faith or not even sure if they believe there's a God. If you're someone here this morning and you're not sure if you believe in God or you're having questions about this faith and church thing, I want you to know you're welcome here. I want to reiterate. You can come here and struggle and wrestle and try to figure stuff out. You're welcome here. So I remember a guy, he comes up to me and he says with passion, all right, Rick, tell me, what is God like? And whatever you do, you don't, don't use the word love, don't use kind, don't use good, don't use peace. Come on, tell me, what is God like? And he was kind of passionate, and he was kind of in my face. And before I could even respond, you don't know, do you? You can't tell me what God is like in that way. And I went, oh, hey, give, give me a second, dude. Yeah. And really what I was processing was the scope and size of the question. Let that kind of sink in. The scope and size of the question. What is God like? If somebody was to come up to you and they were to ask you, okay, I want you to tell me, I want to know, I, I need to, I have this dire need to know. I'm in a situation in my life and I really need to know. What is God like? But don't use the word love. I'm tired of these little platitudes of love and kind and good and peace. I really want to know what But Yahweh, the king of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, who made the heavens and the earth, I mean all that, I really want to know what's he like. What would you say? What would you do? Now, Isaiah 40, verse 18, we'll put it on the screen. It goes like this. With whom will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? And it's really a rhetorical question. And here's what he's saying. Hey, there's nothing or no one that you can compare to God. And there's no image you can come up with in your mind or head to really describe who God is. In fact, the Hebrew people were so concerned about seizing a moment like making a statue or making a monument or making a painting to capture a moment of what God is like. They wouldn't do it for fear it would turn into an idol. So if you were going to an Orthodox Jew's home and asked him, hey, can we see your wedding photos? Many of them would not have any. They're concerned. If they seize the moment of the photo, they'll be so concerned about the image of the photo, they'll miss what God is doing in the current and present moment. Now, the Apostle Paul tries to help us in the opening chapters, chapter 1 of Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn over all creation. So we get this hint that if you want to know what God is like, you have this image of God in this person named Jesus. So now I ask another question. Uh, if I say the word Jesus... What is the first image that pops into your head? 
the very first image, the very first picture, the very first thought, what is Jesus like? What's the first image, picture you have? Now, when I was growing up as a child, uh, my grandma had a photo, a bit of painting in the living room, in the couch, over which I slept, and this is it right here. Anybody have that image burned in your brain, right, that photo? And you look at that photo of Jesus, right, and you see, man, he's got a great tan. I mean, this dude had a tan. <laughs> and his beard is groomed. He's been, he's got his eyebrows look like they might have been waxed or something. I don't know. And, and, and the hair is perfect. I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, this could be on the front cover of a Harlequin romance novel. <laughs> and you look at this and go, man, that's what Jesus is like. And everybody buys into this concept. But is it really? And do you really know where this photo, where this portrait came from? To know where it came from, I've got to take you back to the 15th century when Alexander VI was pope. And history does not speak well of him. His actual legal name was Rodrigo Borgia. And history says he was a bad dude. He was a bad pope because they believed that he bought himself the papacy. His uncle was a pope. So he had influence to help him become a pope. And he had four kids. You figure that out. And two of those kids, brothers, had romantic interest in their sister. And even history would say that Borgia himself, or Pope Alexander VI, he had a romantic interest in his daughter. I mean, can you say dysfunctional family with a capital D? And history is very, I mean, they're not, I mean, this make the, the housewives of Orange County look like Toy Story 4. I mean, we're talking about some heady, whew, rough stuff here. And not only that, that Borgia, or this Pope Alexander VI, when they changed his name, uh, he decided while he was Pope that he wanted to have some photos of Jesus around. And so he ordered the painters to paint photos of Jesus using his own son as the model, because who knows what Jesus looks like, right? And now his son's name was Caesar, Caesar Borgia. And he was really a bad dude. This is him. And Caesar, he was, uh, he was in love with his sister so much so that he slept with her and he killed his brother out of jealousy to keep her to himself. This guy was a bad dude. When his dad had these papal edicts and people did not follow them, he would get on horses. After they, after they had killed the dude, he would get on his horse and trample them with the hooves of the horse into the ground. That's him. Now, put up next to him the other photo. So for many in this room, the earliest image you had of Jesus was similar after a guy who had romantic interest in his sister and stomped people's bodies into the ground with his horse. This morning, I hope that you leave with a clear image of what God is like, of who Jesus is like, something totally different and deeper than some little portrait or painting like this. And if somebody ever comes up to you and asks you a question, tell me, what is God like? You'll have an answer. So let's go to the Bible. 
We're going to do a verse by verse. Going to walk through this. Just kind of walk through. You got open page there. Take notes if you feel so inclined. We're at verse six of chapter two, fifth week in our series on studying the book of Colossians. Verse six. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Now those last three words, overflowing with thankfulness. In the second week of this series, we learned in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul was laying out how to live the worthy life. He talks about it down there in verse 10 of chapter 1. You may live a worthy life that when you get to the end of your life, you want to hear God say, good job, thumbs up. He says there's four things that you do to kind of help that happen. And the first one was down there in verse 12, to live a life of giving joyful thanks. Over here in chapter 2, he says again, live a life overflowing with thankfulness. I think he's connecting chapter 1 and 2 to understand really what it means to live a worthy, good life. Now, you need to remember, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church in Colossae. He's never been there. He's never worshipped there. He knows the pastor. He's mentoring the pastor. And the pastor's told him, listen, this church is awesome. They're a great group of people. But, he says, there's some bad influences that's coming into the church. So right here in 6 and 7, here's what he's saying to this little church. Listen, I want you to remain as you are in the truth. Continue in the truth of Jesus. Right there in verse 6. Continue to live in the truth of who Jesus is. Be rooted and built up, stay in him, being strengthened in Jesus. Always with an attitude of gratitude. Always have that attitude. It goes on in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now that word captive is circled in my Bible because that is a Roman word. And remember, he's writing this letter to be subversive. He's using the language of the empire to teach a truth to the Christians in Colossae. That word captive, it's a Roman word, that whenever they would go out to conquer a nation, they would do two things. The first was plunder it. You'll learn more about plunder in a moment. Second, they would take captives, and they would bring the captives back. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. There are some bad influences who've moved into your church, and they're trying to take you captive by making you believe that you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to do that to be right with God, to get God to love you, to be right. You've got to, they, they start adding things to what it means to be a Christian. Now, I, I like to call this the fine print theology. This is stuff that's so small that it's kind, of sub, it's kind of subliminal that it's there, but you can't even see it. It's like when you go buy a cell phone, right? You go buy a cell phone, and it's a good deal. And it's going to be a $250 mail-in rebate, they tell you. And, and you get to choose your contract. You get to choose uh, your plan, your cost. You get to choose it all. And the price can never go up, and they can never cancel it on you. And so you have the contract. you got to sign the contract. But as you start looking at the contract, down at the very bottom of the page, you see this little print that is so small, you've got to have on your glasses and a microscope 
and a magnifying glass to read it. And when you read the small, little, teeny, tiny, tiny print, you discover that there are only two cell phones that fit this sale price, and one of them is about to be discontinued, and they're not going to service it. And to get this price, you've got to live in this zip code, and you don't. And to make sure it doesn't escalate in price to get higher, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to do this. And, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. There are these deceptive philosophies out there, and these people are kind of sneaking in telling you that if you want to be right with God, if you want God to love you, you got to do this too, and you got to do this too, and you got to do this too, and he's saying no. Be rooted and built up only in who Jesus is and continue in the reality of that, period. That's what he's saying. He goes on right there in verse 8. He said, see to it no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, last week I shared with you that if you were a Christian in Colossae, Roman, you would go to church, you would worship God, you would go to the temple, you would worship Augustus, maybe do, the, do that on the way. But you also had a mystery cult. We didn't talk much about this. We didn't have much time to do it. But there's mystery religions. And that's where you would go in these underground little cult-like groups, and you would learn about your salvation and wisdom and mystical sort of things and truths of life sort of thing. And more than just the prosperity of Rome and more than just this God that you worship. And it says here there's some that were elemental spiritual, for, elemental spiritual forces of the world like a wind god and a sun god and an earth god and a rain god. And here's what this, these people would say. Hey, listen, I know you're good with God. I know you know who God is. But just to be on the safe side, cover all your bases and go offer a sacrifice to the sun god. Hey, before the fire comes down, go offer a sacrifice to the fire god. Just make sure you cover all the possible bases and depend on them. And the apostle Paul is saying, if anybody tries to ask you, depend on anything other than Christ, you run. Your dependency is only on the truth of who Jesus is because in him is the fullness of God, period. Don't you depend on anything or anyone else but that. If anyone tells you that you're not a Christian unless you go to a certain denomination or you go to a certain church, or you got a certain pastor as your teacher, or a certain small group, you run. Because the only place you got to be totally dependent upon for your salvation, for your life, is in Jesus Christ himself. Depend on him only, he says. Everything else is just false, hollow philosophies and ideas. He goes on in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Let that sink in for a second. God, almighty God, who took nothing, ex nihilo, and created everything. The maker of heaven and earth, all of the deity of God poured into the body of a man named Jesus. 
in Jesus, you know the fullness of who God is in Jesus. In Christ, in Je- you know the heart of God. You look at Jesus, you know the heart of God. You know the character of God. The kindness, the goodness, the forgiveness, the mercy, the peace, the steadiness, the rock. In Jesus, all of it. God has poured all of himself into him, bodily form. It goes on in verse 10. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. This is the first pyramid scheme ever been created. It was God's idea. And here's how it works. God pours all of his fullness into Jesus. It says right here in verse 10. Jesus pours all his fullness into you. That means when people experience you, they experience the fullness of Jesus. And if they experience the fullness of Jesus, they experience the fullness of God. That means you are an image of the invisible God. That should scare the bejeebers out of you. That people are making decisions on what God is like by how you treat them. By how you live your life. If you're a dad, it should scare you even more. That the first thought or idea or image that a child ever has about God is how they experience their dad. You can experience the fullness of who God is in your everyday life. You can. The fullness of his love, the fullness of his goodness, the fullness of his holiness. You can experience that. You can. In Jesus Christ, he says you can have that. It just just gets better and better. He goes on. It says he, Jesus, verse 10, in the middle of it, he is the head over every power and authority. He's the head, good or bad. He's got it. He's over every good power, every bad power, every good authority. He is over it. Over every church. Over every family. Every dysfunctional, messed up, crazy family. He said, "I, I see you, I got it. Over every city, over every nation, over every world. All of it under Jesus. And some of you, sometimes I say, oh, my goodness, you know, what's this world going to? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Things are so bad. I'm so sorry, my kid. My kid's got to live in this world to come. Oh, what's the world coming to? I'm just so, so, I'm so upset. And God's going, really? It's been like that ever since Cain slew Abel. And you're all worried and all been out of shape and all, oh, oh no, the world, everything's falling apart. And God's going, I got it. It's all under me. I got a plan. You may not be able to see it. Your free will, yeah, go ahead. I'll give you free will. You messed it all up. But I got a plan. I'm working. 
Let me ask you something. When you're in a business or in a family, in a group of people, and something happens, and oh, no, everything's bad. Everything's falling apart. And you got two people in authority, and one of them goes, oh, no, what are we going to do? Oh, everything's so awful. Oh, no, oh, God. oh, this is just the end of the world. Blah, blah. And then there's one person who kind of goes, no, we got it. We're going to work through this. Everybody, just calm down. Who, who are you going to go to? Who are you going to run to? And I'm here to tell you that God's got it. He's got it under control. He's steady. He knows what's going on. He says, I got a plan. You can trust me. Everything good and evil under me, I got it. So stop being all stressed out, bent out of shape, and all flustered and everything. Sleep. Stop tossing and turning, worrying all night long. Verse 11. Is anybody out there? <laughs> Are you checking your score of the phone, soccer? I don't know. It's going to explode. Verse 11, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision and perform, not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, in this particular verse, he's referring to the Old Testament or the Hebrew understanding of covenant. And covenant means unbreakable promise that God makes. And when you were Hebrew, you were Jewish, and you were circumcised, your flesh, it's a symbol that you're stepping into accepting the covenant of God's unbreakable promise with you. And now the Apostle Paul saying, Jesus come. And he's come on the cross for male and female, for everyone. And when you say yes to this cross, you are stepping into the covenant. When you say yes to this thing right here, this cross, what Christ has done on the cross, the fullness of God, you're saying, yes. And God's saying, yes. And God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never make my, break my promise. I love you, and I'm there for you, period. And you're stepping into that. He goes on, it gets better. Verse 12, having been buried with him in his baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Jesus from the dead. In this verse here, he's laying it all down the line, just very plain and simple. In your baptism, whether you were immersed, whether you were baptized as a baby, as an infant in the grace of God, and then you accepted your baptism and you get older, whether as an adult, you came in, you kneeled, and the water was poured upon you. In your baptism, all the ugly, all the sin, all the shame, all the pride, all the immorality, all the thoughts that you don't want anyone to know, all the things that you have done that you're embarrassed about if it was put up on the screen, it has been buried, it has been washed, it is clean, it is gone. And when you come up out of that water, or you stand up after needing the water being washing down over you, or you knelt down and the sign of the cross, the baptism placed upon your head, accepting the baptism of your infancy. 
you're standing up into a new reality that you are a forgiven child of God. And you belong to him. And he's saying you stay in that reality of knowing who you are. Don't let all this other stuff get added into your head, these deceptive philosophies. Stay built up and rooted in Jesus and him alone, what he has done. He goes on, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. In other words, when you didn't even know there was a God, when you were far away from God, when you were wandering on your own trying to figure life out in your own strength, when you were digging yourself into a hole that was so deep, you thought you would never see the light of day. While you were doing all that, the scripture says God was making a way for you to get out. To be alive in Jesus Christ. While you were messing up your life and tearing everything up and making a mess, he said, I'm going to provide you a way out. And you're going to be alive in my son, Jesus Christ. In him, you will find out what it is to live like you never lived before. And you don't let anyone add anything to you that's different than that fact of who Jesus is in the heart of your soul and your life. He goes on, verse 14. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. For he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, right there in the middle of that little verse, there's two words, legal indebtedness. That's a big image. And here's the image. If you have not done so yet, this will happen to you. It will. You're going to wake up one day, and you're going to go, why am I here? Why am I even alive? What's the purpose of life? What does all this mean? I just feel like, why am I here? And somewhere in the middle of that quest, you're going to figure out an awareness that there is a God. That God created and made you. And when you figure that out and you kind of come to that understanding, you're going to realize, whoa, I've really missed the mark of who I am. I'm not the person God really wanted me to be. I'm not the husband. I'm not the wife. I'm not the mother. I'm not the dad. Oh, my goodness. I really missed it. And then all of a sudden you start thinking, man, I got to start getting back in God's good graces. I got to do this and I got to do that. Because you had this big old IOU on your forehead. Oh, I feel like I owe you and I owe you and I owe you and I owe you and I owe you. I owe you. Legal indebtedness. And the Apostle Paul says, no, you don't. Because Jesus, on the cross, took care of it and wiped the slate clean. You're forgiven. It's done. It's over with. It's buried. Anyone who is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. He says, live into that reality. Stay in that spot. Stay in that spot. Stay there. Don't veer from there. Continue built up and rooted in that, he says. 
And then he finishes with this last powerful verse, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Now again, I have public spectacle and triumphing circled in my Bibles because those are Roman words. Very strong play on words. And he's talking about a triumph. In the Roman word, a triumph was a celebration, a triumph celebration. And here's the story behind that. Let's go to September 28, 61 B.C. Pompey, a Roman general, has just conquered three continents. That had never been done before. Separate him from all the other generals. He comes back to the Senate, the highest level, and he says, listen, guys, I want to have a triumph celebration. So he, they say, okay, let's see. Let's check out your plunder. Well, how much stuff did you capture? Let's check out the captives. Did you bring about any sort of leaders home? They say, okay, you did that. Let's have a triumph celebration. And they would have the triumph. And what they were saying by having this big Roman celebration was, Rome has the biggest army in the world. We're the most powerful nation. We're the best, and we'll promise you prosperity. Just believe in us, and we're going to give you what you want. That's really what they're saying. So Pompey, in uh, 61 B.C., he conquered North Africa, and he's having his celebration. And the general who conquered leads the parade, leads the triumph celebration. And so he's usually it's on horses, but he had collected these elephants from North Africa. He wants to ride the elephants. And so you enter the parade, go through these arches into the city, and everybody's cheering. Well, one of the elephants got stuck in the parade because the arches was made for horses. And this elephant was huge. And people start laughing at Pompey because this elephant won't get through the arch to start this celebration. He gets up on top of the elephant and says, listen, my elephant, my plunder may be stuck, but I am Pompey. And we are bigger than any of this, blah, blah, blah. Everybody cheers, 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 cheers. They added an extra day to the celebration. On his, it was the day before his 45th birthday, actually. Because there was so much plunder, the parade would never end. It would just kept on going. Now, here's what a triumph celebration looked like. First of all, we have on the screen, there would be the heralds. And the heralds would come out. Da, 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 da. We're going to have a triumph. Everybody, all ye here, ye come out, Roman citizens, see this wonderful thing. Rome is the most powerful nation in the world. Let's come celebrate together. And they would do that, and then they'd bring out the plunder. The plunder, they'd bring the plunder out. And the plunder, it was like an antique roadshow, okay? That's really what it was. Because remember, there was no television, there's no internet, there's no Instagram, there's no pictures. And so, if you're a kid and you're at home and you want to see what North Africa's like, you come running out there because you're going to see all the exotic animals, you're going to see all these costumes and dress and the paintings and the pottery and the gold and the jewelry and all that sort of stuff. I mean, two days of it, they, they, they happened, they did that. And then, after the plunder, they bring out the captives. Now, when they bring out the captives, if you're a captive, you wouldn't know part of this triumph parade. Cleopatra didn't. History says she took her own life, so she would not be a part of someone's triumph celebration. Because you are marching through the streets, and the people are spitting on you and mocking you and throwing stones at you and just kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. And here's what Rome is saying. Listen, look who we have conquered, the mighty leaders of the world, the evil people. We have broken them. They are, we have expanded our territory. I am your leader. Worship me. Give me your homage. You know I will give you whatever you want. Just give it to me. That's what he's saying. Now, these leaders were very insecure these generals and Caesars. So sometimes they would actually kill the leader of the opposing army before they had the triumph because they were afraid 
like Cleopatra, they'd be so fixed. We want to see Cleopatra. We want to see so forth that they would not be the center of the celebration. So they would kill them. Hear this story again. Verse 15, hear it again. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, God made a public spectacle of them triumphing over the cross. And here's what this verse is doing. Paul is painting the picture of a triumph celebration. Showcasing all the plunder, showcasing all the captured evil leaders, and he's saying what was captured on the cross made a public spectacle of everything. Made a mockery of it all. Because it captured the imaginations that on the cross, Jesus paid the price, the IOU, the slate has been wiped clean. That all of the powers and the authorities that grab hold of you as a stronghold, your shame, your sin, your brokenness, your jealousy, your envy, your addiction, your depression, your stuff has been held captive on the cross, taken away by Jesus Christ, and you're free. And the powers and the authorities of the world, when he died upon the cross, they thought, uh, we got this Jesus kid. We took care of him. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. It so captured the minds of 11 men and 7 women and a host of others. They received the Holy Spirit. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they started telling the whole world about who God is like. And I can see Paul in his little prison cell in Rome. He's writing, oh, my goodness, church. Oh, my goodness. Listen, don't get caught up in all that deceptive ideas and philosophy. you got to earn this, and you got to do that, and you got to do that. Just remain in the truth of who God is. That's Jesus on the cross. Be dependent upon him because the fullness of God has been poured into him, and the fullness of Jesus has been poured into you. And you can be who God created you to be. You can. You can. And my question for you is, do you really believe that? I mean, do you really believe it? Because I'm not sure many of you really believe it. You say it here, but you don't believe it. A woman's in my office, and she's a Christian, baptized, all that sort of stuff. And, but she's struggling with faith, who God is. And she brings in her little journal. She said, let me see your journal. And I read in her journal all these places, God, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, God, that if I do this. And, blah, blah. and she's really saying that I've got to, she's got to earn to get in God's good graces. And if God, if Paul would have been in that office with me when she was sitting there, here's what he would have said. Lady, uh, there's nothing you have to do except receive what I have already done. That's it. And I want you to stay right there. Can I make you a promise? Here's a promise. The authorities and powers of this world are going to make you look backwards and make you feel guilty and shameful and bad all over again for all your past. That's what it's going to do. And when that happens, you say no, because this here is what God is like, this cross. This cross is my anchor. This cross is what grounds me. It's this cross that reminds me of who I am and what God has done 
And all I can do is stay at the foot of the cross, remain there, because that's where you find out who God is like. And all of God poured into him, poured into you. And I think if God was here through Paul right now, and Paul was here, this is what Paul would say, Pathway Church. I want you to remain in the truth of the cross, be dependent upon Jesus, and that's it. Period. That's it. You remain on the truth of the cross. If the slate is clean, I owe you. You're free. Remain in the truth of the cross that God's fullness has been poured into you. And because it's been poured into you and people experience you, they experience Christ. And when they experience Christ, they experience God. When they experience God, they experience this, the love of God, which tells us exactly who God is. That's it. And when you know that, when you know that, there's only one other thing to do. And that's say thank you. Because <laughs> you did nothing. You did nothing. You just received it. And say thank you. So we're going to stand here. I've seen the time. We're going to stand here in the band. We're just going to lead us. And we're just going to kind of say thank you. God. We're just, we're just going to say thank you. Let's sing together. For the Lamb has
praise him one more time right now. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, we thank you that you overcame the cross and you took that on for us, God. And through your name, we can be overcomers today as well. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Have a great week.